Lord, we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge all of the things that, that, all of the things that you are, all of the things that we see, all of the things that we experience of your heart. So, Father, we pray that, that you would now release the gifts of your spirit in this place. Father, could we feel you and know you? Would you teach us? In Jesus' name. Alrighty, well, youngins, you are released. You can head on out of here. Um, as our kids go, if you join me, pray for them. Jesus, bless our kids. We love them, and we know how hard it is for, to watch them go and not follow. They're going to go down and have a great day, but we're going to try to do the same up here. So, I don't remember. Uh, man, it's been like at least 15 minutes ago. I don't know if I told you my name's Adam when I first came up here. Um, but if I didn't, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vineyard. And uh, we've been taking a journey together through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. A journey that, that for us began in September. And it's going to take us another couple of weeks. Uh, we're we're going to take this right up to the beginning of Advent as we kind of move through this book. Uh, but, but as a primer for the passage that we are going to look at today. I want to point out a, a reality that, that permeates through every person everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter when you lived or when you're living. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your history is. One commonality of all humans of every time is that we all worship something. That is a truth. That is a reality. That is one commonality of all people of every time in every place. Every human has something that they worship. Every human has something that they are, are in pursuit of. And everyone has something that that pursuit of actually is how or what their life is built upon. On the pursuit of the thing that they worship. Every person has the thing that occupies their efforts. And because of that, we all reflect that something into the community around us. What we worship becomes a reflection into community. We all have an image, and that image is a reflection of what we worship. Now, in the disordered, chaotic culture that doesn't know God, this image is, is often one of self, a reflection of either greed or a reflection of survival. This image is projected onto the screen of life through our actions and through our behaviors. Because that is what people see, we also see huge industries created around image control or image altering in order to manage and manipulate what others might see on that screen of life. All of this testifies to the reality that we all worship something. We all reflect the image of something. And what we reflect presents the level of chaos or order that might be in our lives. Paul is going to use this truth to pick back up in the theme of being changed by the grace of God. And so with that in mind, would you join me in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. 
Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. This is the completion of the reality of the masterpiece in so many ways. So in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 10, we see Paul calling us God's masterpiece. He's talking about this work that God is doing in us, is creating a masterpiece, something created and perfected, a work that defines the artist. Last week, we saw Paul begin to make the case for change. The reality that, that we cannot meet Jesus and remain the same We can't remain where we were before we met Jesus. While Jesus loves us how we are, he also won't leave us how we are. We won't remain the same. This work of perfection is initiated by grace. The moment we realize that we're loved and we realize the price paid for us to be in relationship with God. This changes everything. Now, the reality is that that, that it costs something for God. It absolutely costs something. We cost, you cost something to God. It cost him something. For him to have relationship with me, for him to have relationship with you, it cost him his life. To be imitators of God is to come aware of, of what we image to the world And give that up in order to take on the family resemblance of the Father. To imitate Jesus is to be sacrificial. To be sacrificial is to die to self. We cannot reflect two images. So in this, we find the cost for us. We must let our our old self become a sacrifice to God. The pleasing aroma to God is not the aroma of good behavior. It's not the the aroma of hard work. It's not the, the aroma of achievement. These words reflect something almost every ancient culture would would experience. When sacrifices were offered to a God, They were burned, and the smell of whatever was being burned, uh, whether it be the flesh of an animal, a plant, um, incense, whatever it was, that, that, that burning gave off an aroma. And this would be part of the offering, the aroma that would go to God. The pleasing aroma that Paul presents is the aroma of our decision to imitate God and thus see what we were, what we were before we met Jesus, die and be burned on the offering of salvation. We die to self and become sacrificial. Being adopted into the family means that we have a new identity and we're called upon to become Christ-like with this identity. This is our offering to, to the Lord. This is our offering to Jesus. This is the thing that we do. Our old image, our old self, our old ambition gone, burned on the altar as we become like Jesus Christ. But here's the thing that we have to keep in mind as well. This is a result of 
not the condition of conversion. So let me say that again. What we're talking about here is the result of conversion, the result of salvation. It's not the condition for it. We see throughout Scripture this offering. People are called to imitate God as an offering. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. This is actually... Uh, this, this passage in Leviticus is one of several that kind of says the same thing throughout this book. Leviticus 19.2 says, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So that's, it's like, like six times in Leviticus, in, within like a, a three-chapter block, we see this call. You must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This isn't about behavior. This is about being set apart. This is about imitating Jesus. Be holy because that with, with, with which you reflect, that thing that you reflect is holy. This call is also given multiple times to the nation of Israel. It's repeated, though, in the New Testament. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter wrote this, for the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. This didn't just end with the nation of Israel. It continues into the church. This is also the heart of what Jesus taught when he was training the disciples and calling people to his plan of reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, we see this from Jesus. And Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. Now, some of you might know that, that we use the, the, uh, that captured by the apostle Mark, by the, by the gospel writer Mark, uh, Mark 8.34, is really like a foundational verse of where we are as a church. We're using Matthew just to, this is not just captured one time by those that recorded what Jesus said. This is an important point. If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take your own way and put it on the altar. Take up your cross and follow me. And that follow me isn't just walk behind me. The follow me is do what I did on the path that I blaze. In John 13, Jesus says something very simple. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. That is as simple as it gets. That's as simple as, this is as complicated as we need to make it. Imagine a group of people that would meet together and just do that. Imagine just doing that. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. Again in John chapter 13, verse 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment as we start to think about what does this look like to imitate Jesus. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. This is one of the most simplified, complicated, crazy, mind-blowing verses in the history of the world. Sometimes I have hyperbole in my sermons. <laughs> Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. This is another death to self and a step into sacrifice. We cannot serve self and then also 
love the way that Jesus loved us. If Jesus loved himself, none of this would be real. Paul echoes this call and the call in our passage today, but also he, he wrote in, in Philippians and Colossians, 1 Philippians 2, he wrote, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Think about the attitude that allowed him to do what he did on the cross. Think about the attitude that allowed him to be in that place where he knew what he had to do and he stepped into it even though he knew what he would suffer. Colossians 3.13 imitating Jesus in this way, this is, this, we're going to call this a chili-making verse. <laughs> this, this right here makes good chili. Make allowance for each other's faults. Woo! Yeah. Make allowance for each other's outbursts, I mean faults, and forgive, <laughs> forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I mean, this is, when we think about what we're actually saying, that this isn't just, this isn't meant to encourage you. The job today is not to encourage you. This is a challenge. This is a high challenge. Now, there's going to be some high support because we're going to walk this out together but this is a high calling. When, when Paul writes the words, imitate Jesus, this is not a minor deal. Again, Peter allows his words to resonate with this truth. First Peter 2, he wrote, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example you must follow in his steps. And then later on in that same, that same book, 1 Peter 4, 1, so then since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. Man. The danger, though, is to think that imitating Jesus is the goal and that this imitation alone will bring salvation. It's not the way that this works. Salvation comes from faith, faith as a response to the grace that God has shown us. And the result of that faith is submission to God's work in us and through us. Imitation of Christ is the result not the condition, because God works in believers making them like Jesus Christ. We have nothing to boast about. Ours is the decision to make the sacrifice. And Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, works this out in our hearts, in our lives. Romans 8, 29 says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them. I think sometimes Paul forgot some words there. Sometimes I feel like he should say, and he chose them anyway. <laughs> but what he wrote was, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
the reason that Jesus could be a sacrifice, the reason that God could work his plan out the way that he did is because of us, the church. We can become the activity of the living God when we allow the activity of of the living God to be moved through us. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul says, Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So while behavior is not the goal of all of this, a change in behavior will result And it also can become a metric for where we are in the process. If we haven't changed, there's a reason for not changing. Either there's something we're holding on to, or we just learned to let go. But there is a reason for where we are in the process for everyone. And this is a spectrum. We are all along this spectrum somewhere with everyone. Behavior is not the goal, but behavior can be a metric of where we are in the process of reaching the goal of being like like Christ. So back to our passage, Ephesians 5, where I think we, yep, starting in in verse 3. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes... These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And so we're back to this idea that everyone worships something, and that which that we worship is reflected into creation. This underscores the main point or, uh, of this part of the letter, the reality that we cannot remain the way that we were when we met Jesus. Just as Paul did not remain the way that he was following his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, we see in Paul a reflection of that foundational verse that we, that we see Jesus taught us in John chapter 8 and then also Matthew 16 earlier. I tell you the truth. Everyone who who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. In other words, when we look at at this, this, um, this idea that we could lay down our selfishness, pick up the cross and follow Jesus, it's linked to the fact that we are children and we're called children of God. We are not slaves to sin. We don't have to act like we don't belong at the table. If we're the adopted child of God, our reality is not a slave to the family. There are no bastards in the kingdom of God. Our reality is not a slave to the family. Our reality is not a guest in the family home. Our reality is not a visitor to God's household. There are two places. The place at the table and the place on the outside looking in. 
To remain in our old self is to stay on the outside looking in rather than allowing our old self to burn on the altar of grace as we take our seat at the family table. I think that taking our place at the family table is reflected in how what we do brings unity. We know that sin divides, and that's really why why Paul makes this point that all of this stuff would be gone is because all of these sins divide community. Staying in sin is to demonstrate that, that we did not make the sacrifice of our old self. This is the process that we know as sanctification, the process of being like Jesus. Because it's a process, it it won't be automatic in all things, but it starts with the choice. This is something that that, that Brad calls the want to. And and that's, you know, one of the best prayers that we can can say is, is a want to prayer. Lord, I want to stop doing this, but I don't know how. It all begins with the want to. We know also that sin is going to be a constant battle for believers. But that reality cannot become an excuse to not take this process seriously and continually place the things that lead to self on the altar of grace. Another point that Paul is making here is that that although when we decide to follow Jesus, we are set free from condemnation by grace, we remain under an obligation to, obedient, to be obedient to God. What we agree to is that we will be obedient to God. Abuses of the freedom that we get from grace result from a failure to take that responsibility towards God seriously. In Romans six fourteen, we see Paul write, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. The writer of Hebrews Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. We recognize that the freedom that we have from the grace of God does not give us the freedom to sin. Unity and order in the body of Christ means that sin has no place. Paul, in other letters to other churches, teaches this. Romans 3 But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. This is the theology of Rasputin. You ever hear, heard Rasputin uh, was uh, a clergy f- 
for um, the last of the Romanovs in the, in the, the Roman Empire. And, and this really was what he taught uh, the, the, those that, that, uh, that, that followed him was that, that it was our duty to sin because we weren't allowing Jesus to do his job if we didn't sin. So the more that you sinned, the more you allowed Jesus to do the stuff that Jesus needed to do for you. And so it was actually a good thing to sin, which is why if you were to look at the life of Rasputin, it is... Thank you. Yeah. De- debauchery. It, and this argument that, that giving God a reason to forgive us is an excuse to sin is, is well and truly debunked by Paul in there. And also 1 Corinthians 10. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And then Galatians, we see Paul write, for you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Because behavior is then, it's a reflection of heart. Behavior is a reflection of heart, a reflection of will, and a reflection of the author of that will. We can use behavior as a measurement of the process, and we can track how much of our old way has been sacrificed. We can see that in the, in the letter written uh, 1 John three seventeen. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 6, if you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. We're called. And as a product of that call, we're changed. That leads us back to our passage today. Ephesians 5, we're in verse 6 now. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in these things people do. For once you were full of darkness, and now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. And for the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Scripture often uses light as a symbol for the people of God, especially the manner in which believers are able to reflect the glory of God in a dark world of sin. Matthew chapter 5. You are, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. 
No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The light that comes from all of that which we put on the altar and is burned up, the way that we choose to imitate Christ becomes a light into this world because we are reflecting what we worship. Psalm 37, commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Proverbs 4, 18, the way of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, which shines ever brighter until the full light of day. And I love this one. I love using Isaiah. I love using Isaiah because we see centuries upon centuries before Jesus would walk on the earth. We see these words, Isaiah 58. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Praise God for that. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Praise God for that. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply, remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. God is the source of light of his people and through his people. And this light is missionally purposeful as it encourages and guides us, as the same time, it is a beacon to those that don't know, yet know the love of God. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? This light just is, is, is for others, it's for me as well. This encouragement allows me to, to look at, at things like, like an election on Tuesday and say, there's no reason to be afraid. There is no place for fear because the Lord is my light and salvation. John chapter 3, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. And those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. What God wants is for the chaos to end. What God wants is for order to return to creation. What God wants is reconciliation. What God wants is for us with the altar of grace in front of us. He wants us to step into the light have all of the things that are not his exposed as we drop them onto the fire and watch them burn. Back to our passage, Ephesians 5, 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves 
and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we turn back to worship this morning, we have Paul calling us to the reality of changed life. He's demonstrating for us in this passage what that changed life looks like. As we step into the adoption of God and become his child, we sacrifice what we were for what we were created to be. As our old self burns on the altar of grace, the change is evident in what we reflect to the world. Sin and selfishness begins to dissipate as we more and more take on the family resemblance. The result of this, what Paul is presenting to us, the result of this in our hearts is gratitude. And gratitude leads us to worship. So as children of God, one family, together we take our place around the table. We respond to the love of the Father by allowing what is in us to come out by reflecting the Savior into the world around us. So let's do that now together as we turn back to worship, worshiping the one whose work in us leads us to the identity of masterpiece. Amen. Mm-hmm.